Welcome to the Unfair Advantage podcast, where we will explore the unique experiences, skills, and abilities high performers bring to bear in their field. In each episode, we will unpack the guest's expertise and insights to help all of us develop our own unfair advantage. Hello, and welcome back to the Unfair Advantage podcast. This is episode two. I'm really pleased to be joined this afternoon uh, by Jenny Coe and Amy Whitehead, who have recently edited a book called The Myths of Sport Coaching. And I think this work is incredibly timely given the broader cultural narratives we have around coaching, what it means to be great, managing work-life balance, um, burnout, all of these things that I'm sure we're gonna get into. But first, I'd like to just welcome them both uh, to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Alex. <laughs> Thanks for asking us, Alex. Delighted to be here. Oh, this is going to be an awesome experience. I'm really glad that we could have you both. So I think to get us started, it would be wonderful to just hear about the genesis of this work. I mean, obviously, it took a long time to put something like this together and an incredible amount of thought and experience. So tell us the story, like what inspired you to, to put this work together? How did it come about? And we'll go from there. I'll jump in. Amy can um, do a nice ad on the gaps I usually leave. Um, you know, it's um, it's a great partnership that we both have because on a as a a, a friendship basis, M's um, my world and Amy's world ends up being a little bit intertwined in the practitioner side of things. But like Amy's steeped in the academia around all the different areas of coaching, and I spent gosh, years and years and years as an athlete coach on the ground, um, experiencing coaching from a number of different angles. And when we got into our early conversations, we were seeing similarities on these myths or misconceptions that kept popping, popping up. Um, and at the time, there was probably no idea for a book. We just kept coming back to, I can't believe I've heard this today. Or she'd say, well, I, I tried to introduce this, or I heard this at a workshop when I was exploring X, Y, and Z. And then an opportunity came for... Um, us through Amy's link with Sequoia and Andy, the publishers, to say, hey, what do you think about doing this? And our early conversation came to, yes, we know there's some myths out there. We're not the experts in all these areas. So let's not start putting pen to paper ourselves. Let's see what our network looks like. But can we make it accessible to the coaches across the experience spectrum so that we're not looking at just high-end coaches um, in the high-performance space. We're looking at coaches across all area who can pick up a chapter and go, I can't believe I was thinking that for so long. And how, what, you know, why is no one challenged my thinking? And, you know, no, loads of different areas. There's nutrition in it as well. We look at uh, resilience. We look at the concept of cool to be kind with care and coaching. So it's um, 20 chapters, 32 contributors, 12 different countries covered, um, and it's it, the chapter has a QR code that allows people to do a little scan and connect. So there's nice little touches there that I haven't seen in other books. And it's not to put errors on top of anybody else's. But from the experiences that we've had, it's an opportunity for um, the world where sometimes the world of academia seems really far away from coaches who've picked it up through a parent role, a volunteer, or they've been in it for years and they just haven't dipped into the, the research or the, what underpins what they do. So now there's a chance for them to kind of go in the safety of their own home and comfort to read through a chapter and go, ah, that 10,000 hours. <laughs> or learning styles so Amy am I where's the gaps fill, fill it in there no I think you did a really good job there Jim but I think so when the um publishing company got in touch about the book um, I think they had in mind like 
there's lots of like myths of psychology where you've got kind of 500 words on 50 different myths but although them books are really cool what we wanted this book to be was we wanted it to have a little bit more depth to it so we wanted it to one kind of tell the story of where the myth has come from to kind of unpick first there is some truths in some of these myths but also kind of where the the not truths are and then also provide coaches with some practical um kind of takeaway messages some things just for them to really go away and think about and hopefully it can help coaches improve their practice so I think for me, like Jen was saying there, we we're always having these conversations, you know, what, what are the myths? Like Jen's working with coaches on a daily basis. I, you know, teach aspiring coaches um, through the programme at Liverpool John Moores University. And like I'll admit, like 10 years ago, I was teaching about learning styles. I was having conversations with coaches about the differences between coaching men and women. Um, so I was kind of perpetuating some of these myths myself within my teaching. Um, but I think, you know, through through this book and through our learning from some of the authors, it's really kind of allowed a lot of coaches to go, oh, hang on a minute. You know, maybe some of the things I have been doing haven't been, you know, fully based in evidence and it's not fully evidence uh, research informed. And maybe I need to think about it a little bit differently. Um, and I think Jen made a good point where she said that, you know, it's in the comfort of their own homes. So there's no one there that, like kind of telling them off for thinking differently or like using certain um, coaching behaviours that may be kind of dispelled within this book. Hopefully they can feel safe um, when reading, reading the book and it gives them just something to go away and think about and discuss with other coaches. That's awesome. Yeah, I think it's probably incredibly helpful for folks to be able to explore this on their own. I guess what it makes me think of most readily is, you know, coaching culture is sort of a unique space. There's oftentimes, you know, fear that you're maybe doing something other people aren't doing or other people are doing something you're not doing. And I could see how in many of these myths, that sort of fear might, might be a big part of what's going on. I guess to deviate from my initial plan of where I wanted to take this a little bit, tell me a little bit about, I guess, the broader culture of coaching first and sort of how you've seen these myths play out in that space. Well, you've touched on something really cool there, and it's something that's definitely prevalent in the world that I was in and definitely am in now in professional um, football is that we've got terms that people pick up through their formal qualifications or concepts that they explore through, uh, you know, different social learning spaces. And yet they don't get a chance to, to look at what they look like in their own contextualize and look at it in their own environment. And there's definitely in the spaces that I've operated near the higher end is a blame culture that's there. And so people don't wave the flag and go, Hey, actually, do you know what? Is someone resilient or is it resilience? Is it on a continuum? Is it context specific? And um, if we look at how we break down these terms and how we revisit them and in different in like different industries, 
there's evaluations that happen more informally than they do in coaching. You do your level one, two, whatever it is in, in each sport, and then you're done. You're, you tick the box, you get your cert and out you go. And actually what we've seen as we've gone through different spaces ourselves, and Amy and I talk about this a lot, is the support network that's around people or, or lack of and how they don't get a chance to bounce these ideas off and go, I don't, I don't really know. Actually, I've been saying this term for a while now. And when we talk about new terms like culture or psych safety, not new, new terms, but fad terms, everybody wants to have, you know, the culture code come in and unpick everything that's cool there and actually what's underneath that who are the people that are in the system what does um a psych safe what's safety what do what are relationships what relationships do you have and what have i had that makes us understand how important relationships are so well, it's just gold in the book for people to unpick and explore. The reality of what we see every day is people usually get into coaching because they want to support. They've enjoyed an experience themselves. Um, they know somebody who's involved. They're, they're short staffed or they continue on a path for a number of years and through teaching or um, different ways to engage with a the sport, they find themselves embedded <laughs> in one way or another. Lots of responsibilities on their back, lots of hats to wear, uh, lots of expectations. Um, and it was, I am definitely a biased lens here. I'm very, very excited to be involved in sport. I do see the weight and baggage that comes with it for people who are in and can't see outside or can't get out to catch some, some air. So it's a really special space, I think, sport is. But as we try to professionalize it a little bit more, I don't know how, at what speed we're bringing some things along with this formal and informal um, learning wise. But Amy, any thoughts from you? Yeah, I think so. Ultimately, coaches just want to help people, don't they? Like, coaches want to develop others. Um, and, then, and then I think they then want to, like, learn themselves. And sometimes, um, I think, for example, learning styles as a myth. Like, that myth, if you think about it, is all about teaching or coaching in a way that then helps the athlete. But that's been kind of taken and we've coaches have run with it so far that they haven't stopped to question actually is this effective where's the research to underpin this um, and I think for me that's where these myths that's why they've kind of existed for so long is because um, no one's actually gone oh hang on a minute where's where's the evidence and a lot of that's what a lot of the authors in each chapter are kind of saying is that you know this myth has existed because it's been unquestioned um, because ultimately, like going back to the learning styles myth, we're, we're using that myth or we're using learning styles to hopefully better others when actually there's no evidence for that. Um, for example, like 10,000 hours, if, we, if we've heard somewhere that 10,000 hours of, of coaching or 10,000 hours of practice makes someone an elite performer, then we're going to throw 10,000 hours at them and we're going to try and make them elite performers. But again, coaches need to just, you know, stop a little bit and dig a little bit deeper below that and go, right, you know, where has this come from? 10,000 hours of what type of practice? Um, and then they'd realise, well, it's not 10,000 hours necessarily, and it's certain types of practice that are, are more favoured than others, um, rather than, again, running away with these myths that 10 years down the line, we go, oh, hang on a minute, <laughs> actually, it is a myth, um, and, and there's there's quite well there's not much truth um in it so yeah I, I think um, personally I've come across or had real like uh, a lot of conversations with coaches who maybe worked in the men's game and then started coaching women 
and they'll get in touch and they'll say, Amy, is there any literature I can read on how we coach women? Um, and there's three chapters in this book that actually dispel that myth around, you know, um, men are from Venus, women are from Mars kind of thing. Like we've got two different species and we need to um, treat them completely differently and explain kind of why we think that and where that comes from. So yeah, that's something that's kind of a, a real big one for me when working with coaches and then the learning styles. Um, that's a big one too. And they're all big. <laughs> I, could, I could probably give you an example. <laughs> I could probably give you an example of every chapter and every and a conversation that I've had with a coach. Well, we're going to dive, I think, deeper into the most resonant myths now. I think listening to you talk about the 10,000 10, hours myth, I mean, that's certainly one that resonates for me. I think uh, we owe Malcolm Gladwell a, a debt of gratitude for making that so popular. And I, I think I can say firsthand, I've seen that play out in how coaches structure practices or post practices, whatever it might be, where you you know watch a player just do the same thing over and over and over again almost on autopilot and and you start to wonder is is this actually helping you know what what's actually going on here so i know that that's one myth that really resonates for me amy let's start with you and then we'll jump to jen what myth i'm going to force you to pick one what myth resonated most for you as you started to read through what was turned in and maybe tell us a bit about how you've seen it play out in your work so the myth that i think Edu well, the chapter that probably educated me the most and resonated with me, what that were, well, there's three chapters, but they're all around gender. So there's two chapters, one by Ali Bowes and um, another by Luke Jones and Zoe Avner. Um, and that's, they're very much focused around, you know, why we make an assumption that men and women are vastly different. Um, and that comes from kind of, the, so this, this is my learning from this chapter around the idea that, you know, um, women were seen as frail and that physical activity prior to the 1900s would damage, you know, female reproductive systems. So they can't engage in physical activity. And then in the early 1900s, they were allowed to engage in certain sports, but they were wearing like huge dresses and high heels. So, you know, fashion kind of dictated certain sports and then even kind of in the UK um, women were banned there's a pitch ban for football soccer um, for women so this kind of then got me thinking around okay this is why women um, perceived you know still now as being you know less able than men um, and Jen, like uh, I know Jen's one of Jen's favorite chapters is the fun chapter, but uh, you don't have to talk about that chapter, Jen. <laughs> but um, that talks about how you know boys and girls from a young age experience sport and fun in very much the same way. Society puts these kind of constraints on them that girls must be more sociable and caring, and boys are more like competitive and aggressive. So it's kind of the environment and then it's the coach and the parents that put these kind of ideals onto these children, which then um, modifies and molds their behavior into adults. And then we think, and then we've got, we have got these two different kind of genders that maybe perceive sport in different ways, but we've created that as, as a, as a, as a culture. Um, and I think it, for me, it's just really opened my eyes and made me question a lot about, you know, how we coach males and females. 
Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And, and Jen, I'll be curious what your favorite chapter is too. But I think what you're touching on is just so important because I, this is a myth that extends beyond sport, right? Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, I think it's it's uh, incredibly important insight for folks, whether you're coaching or managing or whatever it might be, you know, looking for uh, places where maybe society has imposed some constraints that wouldn't otherwise exist and how that might influence and impact how we work with people. Yeah. And what, sorry, I'll, before <laughs> I'll stop. No, no problem. To Jen, but when I'm, now when I'm talking here and I'm talking about this, like ban on like with football or soccer, actually that's only within, within the UK. But if you actually look at women's soccer in the U S like there's a real difference and is like I don't know the answer to this but is this because you know there's there's been less cultural kind of stereotypes around soccer because soccer hasn't been a um like a national sport within that country so sorry I'm just thinking out loud um but yeah this is basically around cultural norms and social norms we can come back and, and wax poetic about the philosophical differences between countries here in a little bit. Jen, tell me about <laughs> the myth that resonated most for you and what um, you learned. Yeah, really hard to narrow it down, but it definitely um, the experiences that I've had on the ground with coaches across a multitude of different sports means that I I was able to get firsthand kind of um, experiences myself but also uh, conversations that came back to loneliness, depression, and our, our, you know, our big B on burnout. Um, and people referred to the system. And actually, as I said already, the system is made up of people. So how do we up manage and how do we manage and look at the expectations around what we, and I heard you refer to it age, um, earlier on, that kind of toxic work-life balance as if they're separate. You know, and as if we can close the door as coaches and oh, now I'm in my personal life and it isn't. I, I read um, a book years and years ago and the, the line of loving and loathing something stuck with me. What do you love doing in the week? What don't you like doing in the week? And that was a, a more accurate depiction in the world of sport of how we could look at that balance or getting that balance a little bit better. Um, and the, the chapter that draws me in and that I, I probably had a good understanding of, but it's it's beautifully written and it's also a nice hammer home of this, the layers of life, life and how intertwined they are. And this idea that, you know, are we happening to work or is work happening to us? And so we have Brendan, Sheldon, Hanton and Lee Balcock, who, Baldock, who go through the idea that coaching is a 24 hour day job. Um, and what's really special is there's segments in there that that kind of um, highlights, for example, the uh, in International Olympic Council who committee who say, you know, and reinforce it's 24 seven job, it's three, six, five. And those are the top coaches. So there's a reference of them kind of reinforcing that the top coaches do this. So where's where's the line that we can really get to challenge that if you're first in the door and last out in a day, it's nothing to celebrate. If you're boasting about living on three hours sleep, it's nothing to boast about. It's also um, and I, I'm not saying that coaches are boasting about that, but they kind of feel there's a need to justify their role a need to say, well, listen, if I don't have this measure of success of winning X amount, then it's be uh, you can't, I've un unturned all the stones. So um, it talks about kind of the idealistic expectations that are in um, in different sports with different coaches. 
and there's great solutions, great as, as most chapters have near the end of practical implications that people can pick up and go, right, if I'm in this position and I've read the chapter and I'm nodding away and going, yep, that's me, I see me there. Oh gosh, yeah, that was me in my old role and now it's me again. There's some solutions there, there's some things, little nudges that people can go, right, here's a check-in. How do I go back to my environment now that I've read this book and you know, come from my home and you know, in the car before a session or I've got a break in the day between sessions and now go back and share it? How do I start to, to scratch on it? So if you don't mind, I'm just going to take you know 30 seconds to quickly read some of the stuff at the back, because as I said at the start, it's not me that's the expert in this area. So he said, to summarize, we propose that coaches are not fulfilling their responsibility as a performer in the sporting environment and their commitment to their athletes and employers as if undertaking excessive workloads that engulf their personal life is the thing to do. The B, they do not undertake the necessary recovery strategies including rest and rejuvenation that we expect athletes to do to balance themselves and restore their personal resources. Um, I love that one because actually we, you know, from anybody who's coaching in any space, they'll talk about recovery, maybe even at grassroots on a Sunday morning for one hour, they'll still say, Oh, you know, make sure you hydrate and get a rest tomorrow before the game next week. Uh, so there's some, there's some identification of it, but how much does the coach switch off or how quickly do they go to their assistant coach or a volunteer or a parent that they've encountered and try to disseminate something they've experienced. And they continue by saying, also that they do not develop personal um, coping strategies that allow them to effectively adapt to the demands that they experience. Now, I'm always and have been even in the coach developer role, a big on normalizing reflection. There's also a great chapter on reflection that challenges some of the ways of thinking about this. But the idea that there's a support network around the person, there's some trust in that circle, be it a social learning space or community of practice that people can say, hey, how do I deal with that championship loss? Or I'm going to uh, a semi-final of, say, in our, in our world over here, the Euros. How do I get myself ready for that? I'm getting my athletes ready constantly, but I'm really nervous about what's expected of me, expected of my team. How do I prepare my, my coaching performance team? And it says here also that um, they fail to proactively manage their ability to function in different elements of their lives and thus position themselves to perform on a consistent basis. The potential severity of the personal and professional consequences of burnout offers a stark warning to coaches to thoroughly examine um, their working practice and the nature of their motivation. And I'll stop there, but that brings me back full circle that when I do work with coaches and they'll say, oh, you know, Jen, I'll come up for air in six months time and I'll have a, and I'll have a week off. Most of them don't are not in relationships. They're living in small apartments that are trying to work through. And that's the reality across a number of different sports. They're using coping strategies that aren't healthy uh, physically or mentally to work through because they haven't paused for long enough to come outside their sport, grab their toolkit, have a look at what's there, how rusty some of those tools are and go back through. So, um, you know, and, and then I, I would, as a coach developer, have tapped in with, let's go back to why you started doing this in the first place and what's happening to who here. Are we stable? Are we static um, as we go through the layers of life and how they're intertwined? But it's a brilliant chapter to, to stimulate some thought. I don't know if it's as easy for anybody to pick up any chapter and think, oh, my life has changed, but it's a starting point to go and have conversations with others. So you've, you've picked one that I sort of highlighted to unpack a little bit more because I think this is such a prevalent myth. And you referenced, you know, the 24 hours a day elite coaching sort of being referenced in very public ways. But even outside of coaching, I think this myth persists in elite sport. Um, and I can remember 
you know, when I was first coaching um, at a small division one school and was full-time coach, I think I was 21, 22 years old. And I remember yawning and saying something to an older coach about being a little tired. And he looked at me and said, you can sleep when you're dead. And I was like, huh, <laughs> that's a, that's a hot take, but you know, it, it really spoke to, you know, this is the way that people think and, and live. And, and I think what you hit on that's so important to me is this idea that you're not, you're not fulfilling your responsibilities as a performer. And so, you know, certainly in an athlete care role, like I am now, if a player wasn't sleeping or wasn't eating well, or wasn't exercising, whatever it might be, we would all be very concerned about that person's ability to deliver during a game. And for whatever reason, there's this barrier that seems to exist between the players and coaches in terms of how they think of their own functioning as though somehow coaches by virtue of being a coach and not an athlete can, you know, sustain on two hours of sleep and really do great work and, and make great decisions. And this is something Cody and I talk about a lot, like ultimately you're really getting paid to think. And if you're not sleeping at all and you're not eating well, you're not thinking clearly. And it's going to take a lot to convince me that you're doing your best work. Um, so much so that I've, I've even had coaches say like, Hey, I've tried this whole eight hour sleeping thing and it feels amazing. Like, well, <laughs> wild, to, <laughs> wild to see how that happened for you. And so, you know, I, I guess I'd love to just kind of learn from, from you both a little bit more. How have you seen this particular sort of 24 hour job myth play out? And do you have any, you know, clear examples or stories where that being on all the time actually ended up working against a coach that you were working with? Amy, maybe let's start with you. I haven't really got any exact examples of a coach that I've seen fully burn out. Um, but I always think back to, I was at a conference once and it was kind of in, in Tokyo on the other side of the world. And the coach was stood up on stage and said, oh, like I was up at 2 a.m. this morning, like what to chatting to an athlete, like, like bragging about it. Like it was um, a really good thing. And my first thought was why? <laughs> um, have, have you not got an assistant coach? Or have you not put plans in place that then allows you to be here? Um, allows you to have a proper night's sleep um, and that for me was a big like wake-up call like he was a really like, he was an Olympic kind of level coach um, and obviously that then kind of perpetuates this idea that you know coaching is a 24-7 job um, but I do think I don't want to kind of well I'll jump ahead and, and Jen can fill in my fill in the blanks or things I've missed but I think going back to you know how we prevent that this myth from continuing to exist it's about you know changing the message within different sports um but it's about you know creating a, a support structure within an environment where and it, this links to quite a few of our other chapters um column cronin for example this chapter on care and i'm actually doing a project with column at the minute with uk coaching on how do we care for coaches not to how the coaches care for their athletes, but how do the coaches care for themselves? Um, and for me, one of the things that we need to think about is to get away from this idea that, you know, the coach is the, the leader, the dictator, the knower, a person who knows it all, but a person who works within a network of others that can step in when he or she isn't, isn't available or needs to step out for them eight hours of sleep or needs to take a holiday. Um, and I know Jen works in, a, in an environment that probably is creating that kind of culture 
where the manager can, you know, take step out and take a break, and there's there's the team around them to do that. Yeah, um, there's loads of stuff jumping around here, but I'll go back to the original question. Like, so I've seen people in an awful state. I've seen um, what before I kind of worked full time as a coach developer in the high performance space, I worked in schools supporting primary school teachers. And I would see in 60 schools in London, um, in really tough schools, high demands uh, based on how the, the system works, the Institute works. I would see teachers come in really fresh in August, September, very like a coach at the start of the season. What kind of group sessions are we going to have? How are we going to define our standards? All these key terms that they wanted to nail down because someone said ages ago, it's good to do that. And I know we Tuckman has a model that we could follow and, you know, get into different stages of that. But back to the teachers, I saw on a regular basis, year in, year out, 10 coaches by, by April time going, I'm, I'm tapping out of here. I can't do this anymore. And it just brought me back to say the years where I played um, at home in Ireland and we'd have 12 coaches over the course of 13 seasons or 11 coaches over 12 seasons. And I always wondered, why don't they stay longer? What's happening here? And they come in and the demands were high. And it was in some awful cases turning to alcohol um, and different ways to kind of keep themselves isolated, their coping strategies, maybe food or um, um, not getting into relationships, not connecting with people, not taking up offers to go and socialize. And so going into the role that I'm in this year, I was very mindful that I'd seen some awful stuff. People stopped coaching. Um, I went to NGBs and I spoke about this, as Amy said, like the organizations have responsibilities to really get and look at what care and coaching and support looks like for their coaches. Um, and for them to, to say without fear that actually I'm struggling at the moment, it doesn't mean that I'm um, I can't manage my job, but I just need a little bit of help to get there. Um, whilst the pressure grows on people or the ideas that they have to have many hats, like I have coaches who might put on the development plan. I think I'm going to go back and do a degree in psychology. Well, OK, what whilst you're coaching 60 hours a week and have a competition, you know, three weekends out of four in the month. Hang on a minute now. Why? Oh, because X, you know, person said I need to do this, this, and then I'm going to do um, an SNC degree because we have an SC person, but they need a bit of help or lo loads of stuff like that. Very typical conversation. So I tried to support them through a little bit of education, um, through understanding that a mentor or coach developer is really, really important and going to the NGBs to look at how they facilitate that. And that has worked really well in some sports here in the UK. And then also currently in my own space, the fact that they employed somebody who's a basketball background um, in a football environment and allowed me have head of performance and well-being <laughs> really said, right, OK, we'll help you keep this on the agenda. It didn't mean that at the start um, people were kind of going, OK, can you fix some of this? Well, no, actually, we're all part of this together. So we looked at our timetable and we looked at how long we were coming in. So were we in it? half six or seven in the morning and leaving at six and the athletes were doing a smaller chunk. So how many days off do we have in the week? What are we doing with that? Um, giving ourselves permission to go and enjoy spaces, giving ourselves permission to go to other sports on a working day. So having a, a day in the month where the staff go to a different space and they come back and go, hey, gosh, this is what I encountered. And they're doing player led warm ups. And in football, it's standard for the head of physical condition to lead on the pitch you know, having really rich conversations to try and challenge the norms. But another thing that struck me, and I'll be brief on this, is when we talk about, as you were saying there with the older coach, when I first started coaching, um, 
I had only older coaches, coaches who'd been in the system for a really long time. And even as a player, um, what all the different levels I played at, I had people who I looked up to and took pieces of what they were doing, some that I experienced as positive and some as negative and said, when I coach, I'm not going to do X and, and Y. But it was the micro interactions between the, the kind of senior coach, if I use the inverted commas here, and how impactful that was on a coach coming in, a junior coach, and them thinking, I need to speak and think and talk like this to get to that level. And, and it can be so detrimental if people don't start to really think for themselves and think about why am I doing what I do? Um, am I still enjoying it as much? Um, can we get some people who are really experienced coming back to coach under nines so we can start this positive language and behavior change that goes through the pathway instead of the experienced coaches staying at that at that tip top stage? Um, because when we do share and people come back and check in and challenge, they realize that some of the not necessarily age wise, but less experienced coaches have a different perspective that's really fresh. That they can add to things. I think that links a little bit to um, the spot psychology chapter, Jen. So the, we also have a chapter about, you know, spot psychologists, the myth that their role is just to fix people and fix athletes. Um, but they talk a lot about in that chapter, well, actually, <clears throat> why not try, why don't sports psychologists or sports psychologists actually do go in and create healthy environments? Um, so rather than being reactive, they're being proactive. Um, and part of creating that healthy environment is to support the coach and, and the coaching staff within that process. So I do, I think there's a couple of chapters there that really hit home around, you know, um, not basically not, um, uh, I guess, creating a supportive environment and planning for that supporting environment. So planning to um, have a season where, a coach doesn't feel like they're going to be burnt out and planning for social support and making sure that, you know, there is stuff or workshops or support sessions throughout the season, not just from a sports site perspective, but just from a, a coaching team perspective to build that into kind of the periodization plan as well. I think that's brilliant. And, and the thing that resonates a ton for me from what both of you have shared is this idea of redesigning the system. And I think a bit about what's happened in the States, particularly, and with the way the NCAA has legislated some things, you know, there are things like institutional control rules where head coach is responsible for everything that happens in their program, even though that's probably impossible and certainly not healthy, um, you know, it does create this sort of weird dichotomy where, or paradox where you're trying to get people to sort of all buy in and all be in it together, but ultimately one person is responsible for everything and sort of high level, you can understand why you need to make someone responsible. But then when it comes to sort of how that's played out in someone's life, you end up creating this environment that's just incredibly unhealthy from the perspective of being over-controlling, not being able to shut off, um, at times like bending into areas that you shouldn't bend into, you know, like the coaches, sports psychologists, when there's a real clinical concern versus, you know, trusting the people that you've employed around you to, to really help sort of heal and perform. And, and so I think it's, it's great to hear that some of that system change 
is happening. And then it also sounds like that's sort of creating some ideological shifts too, uh, where people are starting to think about, you know, rest and self-care as investments in performance and social supports and investment in your performance. And it's going to help you be better. Um, in some ways, it sounds like y'all are much further along than what's gone on uh, over here. But I, I guess, I don't know that I have a specific question around that. I guess I'm, I'm more just curious if you have thoughts about, you know, other ways the system might perpetuate some of this and other things you might suggest people look to if they're trying to make a change in this way. Well, I'm happy to just throw a few more bits and pieces in there because, again, um, there's a number of different chapters we can reference. I said about, like, the social learning spaces, the, the permission to give yourself a time out and say, you know, when I, in the middle of the day, I want to have an opportunity to think about my work, that I shouldn't be doing all the thinking and planning and exciting creative ways and innovative ways, or the underpinning part and the, the reading and the research in my, my personal time. I can use it when I choose to, but actually what about this idea that during the day I can have a pause moment with my team or on my own where we discuss something and we chill out together or we take time to reflect on the session without it being quickly let's make this an end of day do 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 and we're going through the list and um, we introduced this year um, which isn't a crazy concept at all but we did try and enforce it um, time boundaries so when we interact and how we interact and the language we use so banter is a big thing banter is a big thing here in the UK <laughs> and so trying to have um, the little bit of kind of a lightheartedness that you do need in the intensity of professional sport and uh, mixed in with some great rich conversation of care like you know how are you doing today how was your weekend remembering little details about what's going on when people do share in their life whether it's going through a master's or they bought a new puppy and how we can how can we learn more about the people that we spend most of our time with to connect with them and then also on the flip side of that that when the day's over the day's over so whilst we probably see it in the more head coach manager, or oh, I'll just check in on our day off, or we'll just do a quick zoom, or we'll we'll just, oh, I need to contact that player to just check in about something in the session today. No, you know what? When the players leave and we leave, unless it's on a, a friendship chill out or team cohesion time of thing, we're we're tapping out of there for the day. And actually, some people found that really hard to do. Um, expectations with my old in my old job around when you'd reply on an email. And that could come from the, the different bodies that and organizations that we'd have these really clear to go. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, you know, not answering you, but don't expect between this time and this time for me to reply because I've got to give myself time to to see the world, to, to, to tap out of where I'm at, to reflect on the day. And how we got around that in the multidisciplinary team that I support is that we looked at trust and we unpicked that. And actually, I couldn't remember a time in the five years that I'd been working in, in the kind of nitty bitty kind of Olympic pockets where someone says, oh, you know what? That's my fault. Everybody. And, and it wasn't with the malicious intent that people would point fingers, but they just wouldn't say, you know, I got that wrong. And I was like, why isn't this happening? Why isn't someone saying, oh, you know what? We should have, we should have subbed her in sooner. Or actually that session the other day, I should have checked in with her because I noticed something was off. And actually when we slow down, we can get our finger on the pulse a little bit more and, 
you know, it's it does feed into a load of different chapters there, but particularly around our idea of the resilience building and the threshold. Like we need to be the seven myths within that one chapter for us to explore some of those misconceptions that exist around that resilient athlete that we might tag and say, yeah, they're done. That's part of their personality. Well, actually, it's not a trace part of an, a, a process that we're going through. Um, so, yeah, I, I rambled a little bit, but well, there's some few bits and pieces in there that I think could be useful for people. Yeah, and just to follow on from that, Jen, I think Colin Cronum's chapter around care is a really important one. Um, so Colin talks about kind of, um, well, if we look again, going back into the history of, you know, where these myths come from or uh, his chapters like focused on this, uh, this idea of being cruel to be kind. So I think if you watch um what is it? it references like 60 percent of it might be more of you know like um sport films show a coach who's you know like coach carter who's a dictator who's shouting abuse who's you know making them athletes do kind of all sorts of uh, punishments for making mistakes and this then generates this idea that oh you know it, to be successful we need to be really hard on our athletes um and i know like that's massively changed now but i do think it's important that we like really question the the amount of abuse cases that are, are coming to light now um and is that a result of this idea that um you know the coach is the all-powerful person who can basically do what they want as long as they're producing um these elite athletes um but actually if we dig in again dig deeper into columns chapter and we look around the research from Sophia Jowett for example on coach athlete relationship the idea of trust um, and we look at kind of, you know, what is care and going back to like changing the, the culture, changing the structure, like scrapping it up. I think if we look at coaching and we look at a club or an organisation, there's a hierarchy and there's a head coach and we assume that the head coach knows more than the coach below and then the coach below. But actually there are other systems out there. Now, I'm not an expert in this, but if we look at like Norway, for example, I've gone over and done a little bit of kind of teaching over there. And what I've noticed is that it's very linear structure. So there isn't the one person kind of dictating from the top. It's more, let's all, you know, share our ideas. Um, so there's a different distribution of power. And I think power is a really interesting term to think about. And I think ultimately it's how we distribute power and how our athletes feel empowered and, and our colleagues within our environment. And that massively will like impact on people's health and well-being and also kind of performance outcomes. Now, I don't know if I've answered your question there, but I've just kind of carried on from, from Jen's thoughts. Well, it's, bit, it's great. And I, I want to stick on where you ended for a little bit, because the, the other chapter I wanted to spend some time talking about is this cruel to be kind chapter. And I can, you know, from my own experience, in some ways, it's, it's sad, honestly, but I've seen more of that cruel to be kind or break them down to build them up happen at younger ages, more than more professional ages. Um, and I don't know if that's a product of coach experience or different philosophies or what that might be. But I think you hit the nail on the head with this idea of power. Um, and, and I think in Western sports, certainly like we've given the person at the top a disproportionate amount of, of power, almost untouchable status if they're able to produce, um, you know, consequences be damned sort of thing. And so I, I guess to start, maybe talk a little bit about 
the, the nuances of this myth and, and why this myth came about or how it persists. And then let's talk about the role of power in that structure. Yeah, so Jen, I'll start and feel free to jump in. But so I've, I've kind of mentioned a little bit around um, the, the where the myth potentially came from. And actually, there's quite a bit of evidence to show that the myth comes from like military kind of history. Um, you've got this like great man theory. And again, going back to, you know, it uses the word man, <laughs> which um, time, again, times are changing. But when people were asked, you know, describe a great leader, they'd say like dominant, um, decisive, um, like more like dictator kind of characteristics. And a lot of that's come from kind of the business world. But they'll also say things like tall, athletic. Um, and, and then it creates this idea that that's, that's a leader um, and that's a good leader. But when we look at more of the kind of literature about, you know, what is a good leader and um, we move into sport, we know that, you know, a good leader is someone who's empathetic, who listens effectively. Like Jen said, takes interest in people's lives outside of the sport. Um, but the problem for me is, and Colm talks about this a lot, is the term care is comes from kind of um, like caring professions like nursing, childcare, things like that. And they're quite like low paid or low paid for the amount of emotional labor that goes into them jobs if you com compare them to kind of other professions. So they're not, the word care is view, isn't viewed as important, I don't think, because it doesn't make people think of, you know, high performance in more, like high amounts of money because all they think about is, you know, the, 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 these coaches that are um, being quite dominant, being like being seen as the top of the hierarchy. So I do think there's that conflict with a lot of people around, you know, the characteristics of a good leader. And I still think that a lot of people still believe that the, a good leader is someone who stands in the changing rooms and, and screams and shouts at, at the players. Jen, I don't know what you think, and I'll let you jump in in a second, but I'm still, I still see in halftime talks in, in changing rooms, coaches, managers screaming, swearing um, at the players. And I'm thinking, how is, how is this helpful? <laughs> you, you, you went there. You went there. <laughs> I don't mean nothing. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying anyone in your current environment does that. No, not no. Listen, sure. How many years did I spend almost 20 years in dressing rooms and different roles that I've had as analysts and athletes coaching, etc. And the current role that I'm in. And it is all about connections. I mean, you mentioned briefly chapter 20, Chris Wagstaff talks about coach athlete relationship and the impact of kind of the um, sociocultural context and the environment's impact on that. But, but we have this heavy marketing um, social media that's always biding for our time. Click, click, click. What can we drag you over to? And then AI working in the background of all these apps of dragging you down this way of thinking, this channeled way. And it's, you know, even for people who are on, say a platform like Twitter, how many of those people confirm your way of thinking and keep you on that narrative of this is what it is. This is this role. Um, this is, you know, they look at a job description and it says you need to be this, 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 and this. How many people have 
broken the norm way of recruiting? How many people have looked at the end of the year at assessing? Assessing is probably a harsh word, but looking at their coaches like other industries do and say, well, where are we now as human beings? personally, professionally, are we ready to go into next season? Um, not just the debrief on how everybody did in the season, like really getting into the nuts and bolts of it to see if people are equipped, if they're best fit for the job. Um, as we move again towards that professionalization of things, but the dressing room scenario, gosh almighty, if we, I, I think it does, there's a link there um, to your blog that you did recently with Cody, um, Alex and the unfair advantage, uh, players don't see the game. Um, as we do and the see and the think and the observing a difference but there's a line at the end and it just I we spent about an hour and a half talking about this um, the other day and it's the player's experience as the sole source of the truth you wrote at the end of it and I thought to myself yes if we got that idea that actually the people in front of us which Amy can reinforce as well that every chapter has the person in front of you as a thread if we understood what they're seeing, how they're feeling, how they're experiencing it, and we and we kind of circumvent that with all the different, you know, pedagogy and the feedback loops and all these different things that we can do to connect, how powerful, how exciting and cool and fun would it be? And, and we'd come away from the norms of, um, you know, seeing it in a really, you know, coaching boys is this way, coaching girls, leaders look like this, they act like this, you know, and there's another chapter that it links to again, which I think is really interesting. It's uh, Alex, Alex Blackett does a chapter on uh, walk it, talk it. And it's really interesting because he does take just a few sports to explore this. And from a football perspective over here, we're all football mad in the UK where they think, oh, well, you know, uh, Cruyff played and then he coached and, and we have Wenger and he did this and we have Klopp and he did this. So there, there are definitely some buy-ins that you can get from a language point of view and, and the, the you've, oh, you've experienced some of this. But linking back to care and linking back to that, um, what's perpetuated from a social media or in movies, what we're missing is that their experience and this fast-track nature of athlete to coach leaves massive gaps. And those gaps, you know, sometimes they're addressed. I talked to Mel Marshall 12 months ago, who's Adam Peaty's coach, the Olympic champion, the swimmer. And she moved, had an, an amazing, successful career as an athlete. She moved into coaching. And when we had a conversation about the gap, she said, I only knew I made, I only knew I had gaps when I made the mistakes. And she listened, you know, mistakes are brilliant, learning curves and all those cliches that go with it. But if we backtrack, why couldn't we look at the person as a whole? How was their experience as an athlete? What, what do we need to support them if we do want them to transition? Is it for our benefit or theirs? Um, and there's other coaches in um, canoeing that I worked with who have all these decorated medals and all these experiences that when they go to coach, they're usually fast-tracked into the high end. They go and coach and you know there may be some success if measure is, is medals in that instance, but there'll be a point where new people come in to the sport and then they have to go, oh, okay hang on here, I was coached like this and now I'm coaching here and I don't like it. I'm not able to connect. I don't understand. How do I know that person who coached me was on the right track? And did I have a coach car experience? And am I masking that in care because it was a person who gave me attention in a, in a certain way? So it's um, it, there's, there's great connection in the book that brings us to different chapters, but I think it's evident that there's loads of different areas and going back to the player's experience how often are we asking for their input and their opinion? How often do we have our finger on the pulse of the room when we speak? What are they hearing? 
And are we able to get a big picture of who they are as people so that we can connect and thrive and really enjoy what we're doing? And last, last thing I'd say is how do we know our athletes are being cared for or how do we know they feel cared for? And so one good point that Colm always makes is we might think we're being caring as coaches, but do they do the athletes feel cared for? Um, and I think as a coach, Jen's kind of meant, touched on it there is how like how do we check in and just make sure that our behavior of being caring is perceived in that way? There's so much good stuff in here. I feel like we could spend hours unpacking all of this. And I'm glad to hear the, the most recent post resonated. And it's, it's funny you mentioned that I'm actually reading a book right now. And one of the chapters addressed some research that was done where they put athletes in a boat who are rowing and then coaches in a speedboat next to them and asked both to measure the actual speed of the rowers. And of course, the coaches and their infinite wisdom who have been coaching whatever 15 plus years all felt like they could nail it from the speedboat right next to the, you know, right next to the rowers. And they even have a digital gauge, you know, that tells them how fast they're going. And then they ask the rowers the same thing. And it turns out the rowers are significantly more accurate than the coaches engaging their own speed and performance. And I think it speaks to the importance of really gathering that data from your athletes and not assuming that, you know, just because you've been put in this expert role. And, you know, I, I like what you mentioned about sort of the track from player to coach. And certainly that happens a lot here too. And, you know, one, obviously generations change and people are different from, you know, when you played versus when you coach. And so that's one thing you've got to navigate a bit, but then also, you know, what worked for you as a, a player to help you get to that elite level may not work for the next person. So I think there's, there's a ton of good stuff in here to wrap us up and kind of bring us home. I want to ask some quick fire sort of questions. I'm going to ask you to pick more of your favorites, but hopefully it's not too challenging. And then we'll, we'll kind of go from there. So I'm going to go to each of you. Um, I'll just call you out. We'll, we'll see where we end up. So from the 20 myths in the book, what's one truth that you wish didn't get lost? Amy, we'll start with you. Oh God, maybe not, maybe come to Jen. Okay, we can go to Jen first, that's fine. <laughs> okay, so ask that one more time and I'll get a clear picture. So what's one of the- What's the one truths? truth that you wish didn't get lost in the myths? You know what's jumped out at me here, and I'll, I'll go with this. If we look at the learning style chapter, what they think is sad is that somebody just wanted to get, and I know there's a couple of people involved in the early stage of Mumford and et cetera, of getting something that helped people understand people. It, they were trying to make a vehicle. And then we have the monetization of like, oh, let's make a report. Let's make it a tick box. And we lost a little bit there. But actually the message behind it was, do we understand that there's multiple ways? I think Anna talks about it in the chapter, almost 70 different ways that we can connect, not just summarizing it to four. And if we have an idea that actually there was gold in there, we just lost it off track a little bit to go, oh, yeah, she's visual, put everything or can it like, you know, make her drill everything or put it on a board and she's got it. Um, and then, oh, yay, you know, have you checked in that she, you know, she's only auditory. Um, so whilst the chapter is, you know, brilliant and you can get into the meat and bones of it, I think what's and it's in a couple of other chapters is there was a lovely sentiment and an, and a, an idea to get to the connection of people 
um, and using this vehicle, it just went off skew a little bit um, as we went along. And, and now it's a zombie myth. But um, I think that would be my initial one. I'm sure I've, I've given Amy a little bit of window now to come in with one. So <laughs> oh, I guess um, thinking more about it, if we think about Amanda Visek's chapter on um, you know girls and boys and um, that they experience fun in the same way. And I think that's a truth that I don't want that we shouldn't lose um, because, you know, if we can then as coaches, you know, treat girls and boys in very similar ways or coach them in these ways to promote kind of competitiveness um, for both genders, um, I think that, yeah, we'll, we'll be moving in the right direction. So that's something I'd really like to reinforce. I like it and, and agreed we would be moving in the right direction if we could get there. And I think the point about learning styles is, is well taken. I think sort of going underneath and looking for how did this come about and what were people really trying to accomplish and, and sticking with the idea that we're trying to do something helpful, um, I, I think is really important and then leads to, you know, how do we learn more about our athletes so we can help them be the best they can be versus trying to put them in one of the popularized boxes that we've come up with. So I, I think this is great. The second question I've got for you is, which myth do you think is hardest for coaches to get past? We can start with you again, Jen. Yes. Okay. Right. Listen, this could fall into both categories now. So um, there's a couple of chapters between deliberate practice and the uh, fundamental movement and the functional skills, right? There's a couple of different areas within those chapters um, where the idea of a games-based approach and athlete led these concepts that were introduced. I think what's gotten lost a little bit is that people took the terms, like I mentioned earlier on, and they ran with them and they didn't have for one reason or another, maybe access in the language or the courses or people to support them to understand what that looked like. So we've got people across a number of different sports who've just started playing loads of games and letting the game be the teacher but the coach didn't have enough understanding of how to navigate and facilitate that. And so we lost the richness in that concept of now, not across the board, that's a, a broad paint stroke there, but I have seen it across a load of different sports and age groups where the coaches have said, oh, grab this term, don't fully understand it, but I'm going to jump in with this. And they had a bit of block practice and a bit of this term and a bit of this term and uh, some principles on, on, you know, different areas of, linear pedagogy and all of a sudden they had a jumble but nobody to help them make sense and they play a game and they think well this is what I should do I should let them just play and solve the problems themselves and that's not getting the people that are in the environment it's not understanding that actually some people need time to digest it some people need a toolkit and um, some people lost the identity of a coach within that and thought I needed to be a certain person a voice a presence where I jump in and I save them so there's there's a jumbly mix that I've experienced, as I said, with different coaches who are running something because they've read or they've had it as part of a course. And um, I think there's gold in it in playing games and letting it be the teacher once, you know, it's back to the halftime that thing that Amy was saying. I, I don't know how many videos I see of, 
you see Steve Kerr letting people run timeouts and they're like, oh, look, look, share this with your under 14. So I'm going, do you know how much time is behind that? Do you know the level of experience and expertise? Um, and we have football clubs here who are trying it, but it's embedded in their training, you know, and it's it's part of that autonomy and the relatedness to their environment that gets to that point and the mastery within. Um, so, yeah, I think all, all of those chapters, which I'm, I'm not an expert in any one particular area of, but I've started to piece together that if we have all these ideas and, and underpins and they're not understood, then there's a there's a part there that we're losing a little bit, but we're also gaining a richness in how we might evolve sport. And I think there's still a resistance to learning styles. So um, myself and Jen, going back to your original question, Alex, but myself and Jen ran with Anna Stodder, ran a, a webinar um, based on the myth of the learning styles chapter. And there was a lot of organization, people from organizations there that, that um, create and deliver coach education. And there's a lot of questions. Well, if we don't include learning styles, what do we include? And, you know, they were quite open and honest and it was, it was, you know, really good of them to put the hand up and go, we've still got learning styles within our like level two, um, whichever sport program. But I think they were kind of scratching their head then going, right, well, this has been in this course for the last 10 years. What, how, what do we replace it with? Um, and I do think that the learning styles myth will still exist for a number of good years to come. And I'll still, Anna Stoddy uses the term zombie myth, like we can't kill it <laughs> because there's too many people making money from it as well. Um, and even people outside of sport, like friends of mine who've been interested in the book and I always say, oh, learning styles is a myth. And they go, no, it isn't. Because in my account, in my company, I'm an accountant and we get people to come in and talk to us about learning styles all the time. So, yeah, I think it's so big. It's not just within sport. It's in every environment. And I think that is a myth that's going to stick around for quite a long time. Yeah, unfortunately, I, I agree with that part. I think it's one of those things. It's kind of like a astrology where the statements are broad enough that it feels like it resonates for people. And you can sort of see yourself in whatever learning style someone tells you that you might be. And uh, that's a, a bit of a slippery slope. But I think what both of you are hitting on that really resonates for me is, is this idea of like evidence-based coaching, you know, that we can really draw on real science to inform how we design our practices, the ways that we give feedback, the techniques and strategies we use in game, out of game. And I, I love the Steve, for, uh, Steve Kerr analogy there because he's obviously done an incredible job. Uh, but I think it speaks to, you know, he has a coherent philosophy and theory that guides what he's doing. It's not just this infatuation with a particular flashy technique. Uh, but I think that substance really gets lost when you try to bring it to your local, you know, 10U softball club and have them draw up a play because you saw a Twitter clip of that. And I think, you know, the more that we can push this evidence-based coaching and these practices downstream and the coach education and teach people what needs to really needs to develop, I think the better off we're going to be. Um, and so I, I appreciate both of those insights. Where, where do you recommend that coaches start? If they were going to start to apply some of the work from this, this book, where should they begin? So each um, chapter has a section at the end and each section kind of gives coaches some recommendations or some easy things just to think about. 
So an example um, from the care chapter is kind of um, the, I think Laurie, Laurie Ganner Overway. Um, she's done quite a lot of research on, you know, how, how the coaches become more caring, for example, um, and things like, you know, interacting with an athlete's family, involving athletes in session design, um, sharing leadership opportunities. I think that's quite an easy place to start from, you know, from that perspective, just from that one chapter and that one myth. Um, and thinking about how you distribute your power as a coach, um, asking questions and asking for input um, within the session, I think. So as a sports psychologist, I do a lot of work with coaches around self-awareness. Um, you know, I get them to mic themselves up, to verbalize their thoughts and reflections, and then we look and we analyze that. And the main things that we look at are, you know, how are you listening to your athletes effectively? What questions have you asked? Um, how much have you spoke in that session? Have you just like how much how much airtime are you taking up? So yeah, that's just like a, um, a one example of, of where you can coaches can start, and that's just one example from one chapter. But Jen, I don't know if you've got more kind of generic or any other things that come to add. To I that. mean, assuming they bought the book and they've listened to that <laughs> ending, there they're as we would say, they're on the pig's back now. They're sorted, you know. <laughs> Um, like I would, I was going to say the road to self-awareness is a great starting point and that the, the chapters are in, in our editing expertise are structured in a way that there's some takeaways for them to leave a chapter and come back to it. And if it is, you know, think aloud is an incre incredible way to, to dig deep and have a look at where you're at and, and what's landing and how much you're asking and listening and all those different measures. Brilliant. But equally, if you have stuff like meditation and mindfulness which we do every day we start our day off with the intentions of the day at, at West Ham with the women's team speaking with smart people and industry experts I mean look at COVID and what it, it afforded us you know um, amount of people that became accessible endless amount of webinars but having a, a kind of I've mentioned a number of times support around you a number of different avenues whether it's the personal support of you know family and friends or the professional support of your um, people outside your sport and outside that bubble who challenge that that bit of way of diversity of thought challenge the way of thinking and um, journaling at 360s you know understanding yourself a little bit more and then having books and wares and, and great people around you is a really nice way it's not saying that anybody's doing anything wrong the book wasn't made to go oh you're wrong in everything you've thought for the last 20 years you know it's just a, a, a nice little handbook to have with you and kind of go right okay if I if I come across somebody who wants to challenge this myth now I've got a little bit of reinforcement and the the research that's mentioned in it is really contemporary and it's built on as we say the shoulders of giants so it's They've, they're well covered if they want to go and have that conversation or heated debate with somebody. But yeah, self-awareness is a good start. And we've got from the end of March, um, every last Wednesday of every month for the next 20 months, we'll have a webinar with uh, the author from the chapter that will come on. They'll share more information about their myth um, and basically just offer a, a chance for some questions from from the audience and from coaches to kind of unpick a little bit more and maybe some people have read the chapter and they want to challenge it or question some of their content and that's what these webinars are going to be for so I'd say that's a and also a good place if people want to kind of learn a bit more.
That is awesome. And what a tremendous resource the two of you have have put together. This has been an enlightening and incredible conversation. I'm eternally grateful for both of you joining me. I think this is is awesome. This is a really important work that you've both done. Um, and I look forward to seeing how it develops. I'm sure there are more than 20 myths that you could probably list and, and unpack a little bit for us. Uh, if people want to learn more about you or the work that you're doing, tell us where they can follow you. Let's start with you, Amy, and then we'll go to Jen. Yeah, so um, they can find me on Twitter at A underscore Whitehead1, um, or they can see my kind of uh, Liverpool John Moores University um, profile just by kind of Googling Amy Whitehead LGMU. Um, on there, you've kind of got my research, my contact details, uh, email address. So yeah, if anyone wants to get in touch, um, feel free to via Twitter or email. Yes, we could. Um, similar on Twitter, at Jenny Cody 10 and you can have a look at some of the stuff. I'm, I'm a big fan of sharing, so I tend to just grab some great people and share some stuff around. Um, I have a, a new company that's coming into into the website world to get us moving um it's impact the game so people can check out some of the work coach development sports psychology is going to be in a few different pockets or they can just drop an old school email uh jenny cody at gmail.com and, and have a great old conversation i'm always up for a good chat so thanks alex thanks so much for having us yeah thank you both again for joining this has been awesome really appreciate your time and looking forward to sharing the work you've both done thanks alex thank you Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unfair Advantage podcast. You can learn more about the work we're doing helping high performers develop their own unfair advantage at our substack at unfairadv.substack.com.